Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I have a special friend in the studio, Deb Radcliffe. Deb is an author. She's a, um, a friend. She has been an editor. She's well-respected in the cybersecurity industry, but she didn't come up from the cybersecurity industry, so I think you're going to find this really fascinating. So stick around, and as always, follow us on LinkedIn, and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Anyway, Deb, welcome from, I should say, aloha, because you're from home in Hawaii. Hi, thanks for having me here. And yes, aloha and mahalo, which means thank you. You're okay. Well, glad to have you back. So anyway, Deb and I, I don't know how many years we go back, 20 years at least, something like that? Probably more. We, we, we've, we've hawked t-shirts at Hacker Jeopardy. Uh, I used to call you a boss about 10 years ago when I was writing white papers and you're an executive editor and things like that. Tell me a little bit about your background and, and how, you know, how you ended up getting here. Well, I was a general assignment newspaper reporter working for the New York Times-owned Santa Rosa Press Democrat when an email came out and in the internal systems only because that's the only kind of email there was way back then in 1995 that someone needed help working on a book about computers, no computer knowledge necessary. I reached out to John Littman and ended up researching his best-selling book for him, The Fugitive Game, about Kevin Mitnick, who was on the run from the FBI. And that's what got me started in all of this. I was a crime reporter to start with, and now I started calling myself a cybercrime reporter. And I like to say I'm the first one who made it a beat because uh, after I finished that book, I took what I learned and went to all the magazines and said, you need me to write articles about computer crime and security because this thing called the Internet's going to be in your offices really soon and it won't be dial up modems. It will be direct connections. And Byte magazine asked me to write an article about firewalls. I thanked them. I hung up the phone. I called this new company called Microsoft and I said, what's a firewall? When I was done with that article, the FBI literally called me from their brand new cyber field office in San Francisco, asking to use it for training materials. When I started that article, I knew that Kevin Mitnick and a lot of his friends are responsible for stuff Kevin was uh, credited with, were good at breaking through anything. And so I went into the article with the premise that social engineering and other things worked and and I wrote about don't tape your password to your computer monitor and, you know, shoulder surfing and all these different things along with other ways to break a firewall. And that's why the FBI asked me to use it for training materials. They called it, quote unquote, the first realistic article we've seen about cybersecurity. Wow. So back there in 95, where there are still a few of us practicing back then, but not all that many. Uh, and yet here you are still on the beat, so to speak, many, many years later. What, what's the biggest change you've seen in, in the, over the last 25 years or so? And how, how has this all evolved? Well, everything that was really scary to me in the 90s has replicated and become more scary now. So a virus then is now magnified into a meta, you know, like that's morphed into multiple versions of the same virus. So I watched historically, you know, antivirus pretty much fall. I've watched intrusion detection turn into intrusion prevention, which it didn't work very well. So what I've seen is we keep adding more layers of security onto the same old problems. 
and the problems get exponentially worse and more difficult to detect the threats as we add the more security. So what I've seen is it has become much more complex than I predicted it would be back in the 90s. I was accused of hyperbole back then, and I would have to say, no, here's a dot matrix printout that shows how the hackers load the Trojan horse onto the blah, blah. And now it's, you know, I was doing a hack of the month column for Computer World in 1998, 99 time period. And now there's no way. I mean, it's hack of the millisecond. Um, So the criminals have gotten more prolific. There's more criminals. There's automated bots and tools. Nothing was like that in the olden days. Hackers had to create their own malware. The hackers I dealt with were the explorers. They were the ones that I elevate in my cybercrime thriller because they're finding the bad things and they're helping us understand why these things are bad versus the rest of them I just call criminals, the ones who are stealing identities. So I watched the hackers show us what's going to come and then I watched the criminals take off and That's the difference now is there's more criminals. They're bent on stealing money, defrauding. We've got cyber war happening. We've got cyber warfare. We've got information war. It's very complex now and seemingly impossible. And when I started, it seemed like I could possibly help stop all of this by writing about it. And now it is like so big. Right. And it's so hard to get your arms around just thinking about all the problems and all the weak points and the cloud and everywhere, digital transformation. And I just don't know how we are going to rein this in now. Well, I like that you differentiate between the hackers and the criminals by saying hackers are the explorers. These are the people who figure stuff out. And in some of the early media portrayals, hackers were evil. They were kind of the the folks who are always bent on doing bad things. But I think your experience suggests that that's not always just always the case. Well, the the dictionary definition of a hacker is someone who's trying to break things so that they can make them better. So kind of, I mean, I like to think of Albert Einstein as having hacked Newtonian physics. Like Newton didn't think about what happens if I'm riding on the end of a light beam? How do you get the square root of one over C squared minus V squared as a coefficient? Mm, Yeah, that wasn't back in Newton's day, but certainly it, it did work for relativity. And so as we go forward, you'd said we have more and more complexity. What are your thoughts about why are we not just building better defense systems? I mean, after we've, if, if you will, hackers and therefore criminals, ultimately, if they're stealing hacker ideas, if we think of hackers as a creative source, are finding more and more holes. And yet the vendors should be writing tighter and tighter code, which you think that that would be winning, but it's not. What's going on? Wow. That's a really hard question to answer. And I consider myself a disruptive analyst right now. So you're asking the question that I'm asking. And that is, first of all, if you look at the fact that we are running everything over TCP IP, TCP IP was released in what, 1975? And so why are we not looking at the underpinnings and reinventing that while we're trying to secure what we're already doing. I have been laughed out of the room at Cisco when I asked, can we change IP? It's too trusting of a protocol. Ha, 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 ha. The answer I keep getting from everybody is, we've already invested too much money in the current infrastructure and and we're building on top of that and we're digitally transforming on top of that. They are not going to be able to send missions to Mars on this. They are not going to be able to go up to the next level. So I am constantly searching for 
what's new, what, what kind of innovative thinking are we having at the lower levels, at the plumbing of all of this? Because we're layering the security in the stack all the way you know, up the stack, and that's not stopping anything. And we're even expecting our users to be brilliant. So I just read an article today where you know FBI lists these 10 points for you to secure yourself. I'm looking at all of them going, even administrators need to go to school to know how to do all of this. And you're asking me or you're asking my grandma or you're asking my daughter to do this. Like, again, you've thrown us out here. You've given us this great tool, which I can't live without now as a researcher. I could not live without open Internet access. So what do we do next? I don't know. The only innovation I'm seeing happening is coming out of China. And China wants to control all discourse on the Internet. And they're talking about the Internet, too. And other people are talking about the Internet, three. No one is changing the underpinnings still in all of this. Is this the only thing that works? I even ask crazy questions like, should we look at algae or crystals? I mean, what can we do differently to transport data and and share data that isn't TCPIP. And this is where my mind has been for like the last two years. Yeah, and if you remember the IP aviator aviation protocol, which uh, was basically kind of a joke RFC to say, hey, you just tie a message to a carrier pigeon. And I hadn't memorized that particular one. I did memorize 3514, which is an evil bit. But I mean, if we go back, you know, go back to the 90s when you were in there, we had Banyan Vines, we had Token Ring, we had SNA, uh, IPX. Uh, there's all these different protocols, and yet IP won out. And although IP version 6 really started around 1999, and it took a slow rise, but if you take a look at the IPv6 adoption rate, it's getting close to 40% based upon Google's numbers across the Internet. And, uh, man, I wish I had a 401k that went like that because it's gone up you know, 4,000% since about 2013. And yet, even IPv6 has some things built into it that we can use, but not everybody's using them. And as a result, I think it has to do with the infrastructure. Like, why do we still have QWERTY keyboards? I mean, that was set up to be deliberately inefficient so that as you typed, the hammers didn't jam as a typewriter. And you and I are old enough to remember the old manual oh, typewriters yeah. that we took practice on. And so I'm thinking, like, why didn't we go to a Dvorak keyboard when we went to computers? Why didn't that, that was the chance. That was the time when we got rid of the mechanical hammers, and we didn't. And now we're stuck forever. I think they still have QWERTY keyboards on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. They just try to keep them out of the cameras uh, so that people don't get discouraged thinking about that. But, you know, short of tearing down the internet or balkanizing the internet, as it's been told, where the great firewall of China becomes a lot more efficient, like that's it. And now we're looking about other regimes that try to massively control information flow to their population. I was reading recently that the sale of, or the downloading of VPN software has just skyrocketed in Central Asia for reasonable expectations. People want to see what's out there. But then, if you will, I think that battlefield has been pretty well prepared. And a lot of people even have exposed to additional information that's at variance to what they've been hearing. They might just go like, yeah, I don't believe that. And so ultimately, there's a couple of things going on. We've got communications and then we've got believability. And not everything that's communicated is true and not everything that's true is believed. Uh, but as a writer, 
you, people turn you then as an editor, people turn to you to say you're kind of the guardian of truth. I mean, you're you're respectable in terms of what you've written. Nothing has gone out to say this is a propaganda piece or, or this is a show for somebody else. In a world like that of uncertainty, how do you maintain to be kind of the voice of reason and, if you will, the voice of integrity? Yeah, so I'm really old school, G Mark. I, as you know, I fact check. I I get credible sources. I have been trained that if I can't get three people to say the same thing, then I don't have a story. So a lot of times I over interview and people that get quoted because there's no room to put all three of those quotes, those people in there for each point in, I make in an article. Um, I don't grab stuff off of social media. That started happening, God, what, four or five, six years ago where social media became the news. Anybody could say anything and people are just going to put their own bias in and decide this is what they want to focus on. So that's what I call information war. And so there's the different distinction between cyber war, information war and cyber warfare. There are three elements that are covered in my cyber thriller book, by the way. Information war is the way you sway the public opinion. And if you think about the olden days, we used to have to drop pamphlets from airplanes in times of war. And now you can just magnify and amplify a message and keep an entire country in the dark. I do believe that regionalization may occur more around these enclaves where countries want to control the message versus countries that still sort of somewhat believe in freedom of speech. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I believe that the, uh, you know, idea that you should be able to post whatever you want to say on social media is scary because people believe it. And when I was speaking at West Point, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago, I don't even know how long it was, one of the professors raised a really good question. He said, why would I read your stuff when I can read anything I want on the internet? And I said, two words, sir, quality control. And that is, I'm a trained journalist. I, I, I double check my sources. I get repeat information. I get real documents, the source documents that I need. Like I have a copy of PDD 63 from President Clinton. I consider it a treasure. I consider it a collector's item. You know, I have, I go to the original documentation, which helps a lot. And then I have editors behind me. So that's what journalism used to be. And what it is today, I'm not even sure because in my newsfeed, half of it is, look what we we're duplicating from what we saw on social media today. And, and what's missing appears to be a securation. That is to say somebody, I mean, back when we were kids, if Walter Cronkite said, that's the way it is. Well, we believed it because the whole CBS news team backed up whatever it was. And I think it was Unfortunately, it was Dan Rather had had some episode with lack of factuality of the reporting, which ended his public career. And then it kept going from there. But today we're at a point now where you're looking at it to go. If I look at it as social media, chances are it's not curated and therefore should be very skeptical. But if it actually makes it into the the trade press, I mean, not too many people still get paper magazines anymore. I still get a couple of them, but I also have the online equivalent of it because I don't want to wait till Monday morning when this thing finally 
hits the street. So for those who wish to stay informed, and we'll, we'll focus on cybersecurity because that's kind of our area of expertise in the show, what should CISOs or security leaders turn to? Where should they turn to to get information that is reliable so that they could go to their boards or executives, even their fellow employees, and say, this is what's happening, and be confident that they're not going to be caught out a little bit later going, ha ha, like the Simpsons, that you believe something that wasn't true. Where, where do they go? You know, for me, some of my favorite news sites still are like the dark reading site. SC Media has usually pretty good, solid news. Um, so most of the trade press is still trustworthy. But having just worked at one, I do know that the trade press is joining these conglomerates where there's a lot of sponsored content now by vendors. So you have to be really careful when you're reading those articles to make sure that they're the unbiased articles. So, you know, there are, there are clarifications in these media conglomerates where they say this is sponsored by versus this is a media article. But that's another new area that we all get to navigate while we're going to our formerly trusted news sites. I feel that most of the trade press is still very trustworthy. Um, you've got pretty much that's it. You've also got some organizations that produce good information. Like when I used to run the analyst program at Sands Institute, that was content that was sponsored, but SANS puts out a lot of content that's not sponsored as well, like reports. CERT is a really good place to go for data. And when I'm reporting on events and hacks, one of the first places I'll go to is CERT to get the real information, not the vendor messaging around that particular hack. So try to cut through all of that. Go straight to your source materials when you can. Legitimate agencies like CERT are out there to really help and really share information. NIST is a good one if you're working on any kind of government stuff and you're looking for, you know, best practices, advice, changes in. Right now, I've been dealing with Treasury for stuff on ransomware payouts. So there are organizations and it's almost, you're almost calling the need for someone to curate all of this for CISOs at this stage. Right. It'd be nice to have some sort of believable. Uh, it's like the uh, early bird when I was at the Pentagon. We used to get those every morning and they were essentially, literally, they were cut and paste and then photocopied of different news articles. And they said, OK, here's your morning briefing. And it basically was news from all over the place. So you wouldn't get just the New York Times or just the Washington Post perspective, but you'd see a lot of them. And then they went to online and things like that. So so maybe there's an opportunity for a CISO early bird or something like that. I know I have a number of different news feeds that I subscribe to. And to a certain extent, the other danger, I think, is not so much incorrect information is way too much information saturation, where I've got probably tens of thousands of things that I'll never, just never get to. Not to say that there's a value judgment that they're not good, but if I spend all my time reading, I, I get no work done as a CISO. I would just basically spend my time reading. So at some point in time, you got to stick a fork in it and say you're done um, and then move on. And so... You know, the other thing that really bugs me is misleading headlines, right? So you read a headline and you think something really bad's happening and then buried in the story, it's like, well, this isn't happening yet, but it could be. And it makes me really mad when I see that kind of stuff too, like the hypothetical. Also, when you're reporting on misinformation and you know it's misinformation, but you report on it anyway. 
Like if I have misinformation in my interviews, I don't say, you know, G. Mark Hardy said blah, even though it's not true, but I'm still going to print it because G. Mark Hardy said it. Yeah. And so you, you really do need to be the gatekeeper for your readers. Yes. And then your reputation as a journalist stays with it, which I think is why yours has remained so high over the years, is because you haven't compromised on that. And, and so that's kind of Thank a, you. it's a compliment. I mean, it's genuine. As I say, I've known, known you as a long time as a friend. That's part of the reason why I think I've stayed that way is because you're somebody that could say, wow, I trust this person. And, and she's going some really good stuff. So speaking of really good stuff, I want to transition a little bit into this book called Breaking Backbones. Now, I had a, a an author signed copy. Thank you, by the way, for sending it out from Hawaii. Going, hello, G. Mark with Aloha. And uh, in, in a nutshell, Deb's got her first fiction book out. And we'll get into the content in a minute. But uh, the idea of going from being a writer of fact, a writer of credible information, double and triple checking all your sources, to now just writing fiction. How do you make that jump? And is it a diode? I mean, are you now going to be a fiction writer and you can't get out of the imagination phase and we can't trust you anymore? Or can you keep a, do a split brain? How does that work as a fiction writer now? Well, first of all, you notice the subtitle of my book is Information is Power. And mm -hmm. we've been talking about information warfare, information saturation, right? So that's one of the hackers' terms is, you know, uh, information is power. And then they say information should be free and out of chaos comes order. So those are the three subtitles of my books. The reason I wrote them was because I feel, first of all, I love all the hackers and all the cyber guys and women that I interview. I love that they do their job so well. How do you emulate that for the non-technical reader to enjoy and understand? And it can't just be a bunch of people sitting at their keyboards. So in, I don't know, it was like 2001 or 2002, Scott McNeely said, I can chip my dog. Why can't I chip my child? I came home to my eight-year-old nine-year-old and 11-year-old. And I said, what would you do if mommy put a chip in you so that I could know where you are all the time and keep you safe? And all three of them said, I'd cut it out of my body. And that got me thinking, first of all, I trained them, right? Right. Because they were little kids and I'd say, who, who owns you? Do you, does mommy own you? No. Does daddy own you? No. Who owns you? Who's your, who's the owner of you? And they say, I'm the owner of me. So I was teaching them autonomy at a very young age. Right. Um, so um, between those two things, I got thinking, well, what would it, what would happen if we put, got, you know, gave up on all semblance of privacy and we thought that it would be more secure to access our data, start our car, turn our, our lights on, go grocery shopping, go to the bank or not even go to the bank, just, you know, use your chip implant wherever you are to get to your bank, blah, blah, blah. How would that look and where would the vulnerabilities be? And then I started thinking, well, you know, these chip implants People think of them just as RFID chips today, but what if they did more? What if they could read your body temperature and your pulses and, you know, your, and basically report to your doctor if you have medical things wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera, and get, make it really invasive. And so I started with that thought. Yeah, I'm holding up right now my uh, iPhone and my smartwatch. Yeah. So imagine that embedded under your skin. Right. And there's nothing you can do, really, except for if you're a good hacker, you can actually program your own chip if you need to. 
So I decided that if I raised that issue, how many people would take the chips? And I said, well, in the cyber community, probably 50% of them would and 50% of them wouldn't because of the privacy issues and 50% of them wouldn't because they know how to hack their own chips and, and manage their own data. So that started the thinking. And I have really two things wanted to do with this book. Number one, I love all you cyber guys and all you cyber gals. And I consider myself one of you now over all these years. I can interpret almost anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to send like this love offering out to all of you guys. And I wanted the world to see what really happens behind the scenes in that process. And I wanted to sort of warn the world a little bit about the overreach of technology. And so the story started coming together in my mind way back then. I had Cyanthia. She was Cindy Frank, Department of Defense forensics investigator, goes off grid, doesn't want to take the chip and starts this hacker clan. But she lives in a cave because we've got drone overheads and we've got all these privacy issues with satellites and everybody's watching everything now. Globecom's in control of all our data. Globecom, oh, by the way, also owns the chip implants. And I kept saying to myself, well, how could that come by without an antitrust suit? Well, look what's happening with Twitter, Elon Musk. Oh, and he owns Starlink. Now think about if Starlink is really the main way of transporting data and accessing the internet in 10 years. And he owns the largest social media platform. That's an antitrust issue no one's even looking at today. And well, why? Because Starlink isn't big yet. Okay, that's the key word. And so that all happened after my book published. And I went, wow, this everything that's happening right now is so validating for what I put in the cyber thriller. And I also see it more as a TV series. I always have. And it's in script form. So I'm pretty excited because I just met with producers in a speed dating scenario in New York and four of seven asked for copies of my manuscript from my publisher. That is awesome. And and this is a first time fiction author, too. So, you know, really fast out of the gate. I got to tell you, I, I found this book to be captivating. That's probably good. It's book one of the Hacker Trilogy. And so maybe you, you've already given us little hints in terms of subtitles for book two and book three. But without spoiling any of the plot lines. It kind of starts out where the hackers uh, have gotten together to kind of do this, I would say armed assault, but it's more like a digitally armed assault against this global company that's both controlling the communications, controlling people's information, the flow of data, et cetera. And it, uh, you know, they take them out pretty much, but they get some of their folks taken out. And so this reminds me of kind of what was like the early version of Battlestar Galactica or some of the key members of the cast would also like, oh, that person got killed off or that person's gone. And then like, wait a minute, you just, how do you develop a character when they're dead? And of course you do a pretty good job of that because you go back and forth 17 years ago today, 17 years ago today, and it works. How did you kind of get that model together of character development as a fiction writer? The character development was the funnest part. That splitting the timeline was killing my brain, but it was the only way I could do it because it starts with a global assault on Globecom data centers. Unfortunately, they're gonna have to blow out the reinforced wall, which blocks all signals. So it starts with a drone war outside of a single data center, which being replicated across the world and all of Globecom's data centers at the same time, because how do you literally kill the internet? And they also had to go after the satellites. So they had all this stuff waging 
happening at the same time. And yes, the drones are blowing out the wall, but there's other drones coming at the good guys and firing bullets and lasers. So the fictional character development part was actually the easiest part. And in book two, it's really fun because I already know my characters from book one. And book three, which I'm out, um, developing now because book two is in copy edit at the publisher, it's the same thing. It's like an extension of what I already know about the characters. I have been told there's too many characters. That's hard to limit them because we've got hacker clans hiding out in the Blue Ridge Mountains. You know, we've got chief security officers that are working inside Globecom, who, by the way, come under fire also, as G-Mark knows. And we've got, but these characters are based on real people that I've met in the real world. Like Jim Christie, who started the Department of Defense Digital Forensics Labs. I didn't even bother to change his name. I called him Chris James and he read it and approved it. Maine is based on a guy I always thought looked like a lion named A.P. Del Chai, who that's his hacker handle. He's still super active in our community. He's a, a music guy who likes to do big concerts. And so he has a, he holds a rave in one of the chapters of the book. True to, I, I basically stick fairly true to these people's natural characters as I develop them. Michael's actually based on a son of a friend of mine who's an Eagle Scout and not cyber, but I needed that personality. And Adam is based on a friend of another son of mine who has very low self-esteem, yet he has a lot going for him. That character came out of that guy, but Adam's a master hacker and so is Michael in the book. They're young and they're gonna take over the storyline in book number two, just sort of like terminate. Yeah, you're going to the next generation there because they're 17 and 16 years old. At, at, at this point in time, and of course, with the <clears throat> let's go back 17 years, which I alluded to that number earlier, you get to see even the genesis of some of these characters and, and what makes them special and also what makes them a little bit different in a certain way. Yeah, the birth of Adam is in there and right after Michael's born is in there. Um, when I do that fun little scene with the uh, drone coming over while she's nursing Michael. So, yeah, they uh, I didn't want to spend too long on a birthing scene, though. So I kept it super short. Right. Because like blood gore, blah, you know, but I, I think it was like one half of a page. But um, then her husband, her secret lover, who's a spy, has to come to her and, and try to form a family. And that got a lot more play because it wasn't blood and guts and giving birth stuff, you know. So the, so the character development works. And as you said, it was a fun part. And yeah, you have a lot of characters in there, a lot of moving parts. And you might just say, hey, you know, this is it's not like a, a Tolstoy novel where you have to remember, you know, the, all the you know, Denisoviches and everything else like that. You know, these are names that we can handle. And if you're a hacker anyway, I see a name like Skew or Des or Allure. Like, yeah, fine, normal. But non-hackers are like, okay, let me have a little translate table over here so I can keep track of folks. How about the plot line? Okay, how do you go ahead from, I think I'm going to write a book, to I think I'm going to write three books, and they all have to hang together. And oh, by the way, now, this is going to become a screenplay, and it might be a TV show or something like that. How do you go from sitting there with a blank piece of paper in front of you, and then when did this start? Did this start during the pandemic? Is this something you've been kicking around for years? How, how did you get on that path? Well, I, like I said, I've had the story in my head for 20 years. I've had the character names in my head for 20 years. I've had many of the locations in my head for 20 years. I knew it was going to be about human chip implants the whole time. So 
those things were rocking around in my head and I was too busy trying to make money and do all my other writing and analyst work and things that I was doing. But in 2018, I had a little bit of a health hiccup and I realized that if I, and it sort of put me down for about four months. And I realized if I don't get this out now, I may never get it out. So uh, I was working full-time at Sands at the time, and I had to basically have a bunch of people take over. I, I was doing the role of like five people at the time. And so I moved someone into the editor-in-chief position. I moved someone else into managing the schedule. And when I came back four months later, they didn't really have a job for me anymore. So my business became more around um, developing uh, what the content was going to be, but not running the day-to-day nuts and bolts of the program. All of a sudden, I had time to do what I needed to do to start writing that book. So I started writing book number one in 2018. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit, as we all know. By then, my book was, I think it was already in line edit. No, it wasn't because it went into the publisher in 2021. So in 2020, Sands laid me off, which was a good thing because I was able to take that time and start applying almost full-time to getting book number one written and out the door. Um, There's lots of iterations that go on in a book, especially when I send it to brainiacs like G. Mark Hardy for a pre-evaluation. And if I had done that with book number one, I may have avoided a couple of small military-related mistakes and things. So it takes a sort of a village of outside reviewers to You know, you need someone who's excellent at writing, but you also need someone who's excellent at tech and you need someone who's excellent at military. And if you're talking about China, then you need someone who knows a lot about China. And my research is very deep, but I understand I also have limitations. And so that's where my community really helps. So again, I love all you cyber guys and gals. And I think you said something very profound there, and it almost went in passing, and let me try to pull it back out. For those who think, hey, there's a book in me, and a lot of us have expertise, we're probably very deep in one area, maybe one and a half or even two, but not five. And yet to make a useful book that's not a textbook, but rather like a fiction book, you need to have that depth of expertise. However, your career as a journalist And as a responsible journalist who would get multiple sources and vet her sources and cross-correlate that information, I think was the perfect answer to how do you write about something that you don't know about as an expert, but you need to write about it anyway. You do your homework and you talk to people who are experts at it. And I know when Bruce Schneier came out with Secrets and Lies, I almost rewrote an entire chapter for him, did a whole bunch of review on that. Uh, my wife yelled at me because he spent the whole weekend. We were down on vacation, and I'm just redlining this whole manuscript. Say, will you go hang out by the pool? And it's like, well, this is interesting. This is fun. And I was very glad to kind of help out a little bit on that. But yeah, he had gone out uh, to a number of folks uh, and then said, hey, this is all the inputs. And I think that's probably the lesson there is that don't do it alone. It can actually be a team project. Yes, it's a little bit difficult to ask people to take the time. But when they have the time or they make the time, it's really great to have their help. And then obviously you make sure that you acknowledge them on the book jacket for their time and their help. So one of my biggest uh, proponents in the beginning of this was Diana Kelly. She read the first book and just raved about it. So did Stephen Northcutt. So he's one of the co-founders of Sands and Diana Kelly 
at the time was a C, uh, chief information security officer for Microsoft. But, you know, she's with Security Curve and she's a, a well-respected analyst and she's more hands-on with the tech than I am. She came from a hands-on background, but she has a really well-established uh, reputation in our industry, as you know. Yeah, so it's uh, it's pretty. So we've, we've got the first book out and this is available Amazon, bookstores, uh yeah, Pretty you, much you, everywhere, yep. Streaming this, service? Have you, have you got somebody reading it with a James Earl Jones voice? or? <laughs> I have a, a, the audio just came out, and it's at Archway Publishing. It literally just posted yesterday. Okay. Um, but the, when you're looking for the book, look for the whole name, Breaking Backbones, colon, Information is Power. Because when you just type Breaking Backbones on Amazon, it brings up weird stuff. So you have to go, colon, Information is Power. That's so good. We're actually add, add Deb Radcliffe, R-A-D-C-L-I-F-F, to that as well. Um, well, great. So we, we've talked about your writing, the editing, the your journey into cybersecurity, the fact that you built a long-term relationship with the hacker community and you're well-respected by folks. Uh, you're now into the fiction area as well. What's next? What, what, where do you see yourself going in five years? And where, more importantly, not to say there's anything unimportant about you, but this is at least, I'm guessing, 10 years in the future, because you talk about something having been fixed in 2026, and it was a while yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, but where is this where we got to end up? Is this a dystopian future? Is this just something that we could learn today and avoid the problems uh, that you point out in this Globecom future environment by making better decisions now? I really wish that was the case, but as a journalist in this space for 30 plus odd years and sending out these warnings and saying, you know, maybe you guys should look before you leap into the Microsoft operating system. Unix is a little more hardened and, you know, all these different warnings I sent out way in the early days and today, uh, you know, I remember saying, can we make the cloud a new model? If we're going to move everything into the cloud, and this was like 15 years ago, I said, why don't we model a secure model before we start moving everything into the cloud. And look what's happening in the cloud now, the leaky buckets and everything else is happening. So I feel like as a, a human race is too smart for its own good. We do stuff because we can, and then we deal with the consequences later. This is happening with cyber, and it's going to continue to happen with cyber. There is already an article recently about a girl who said, yeah, everybody's a little shocked when I wave my hand over the at the cash register over the, the card reader, and it picks up my data and pays for my groceries. And I'm like, God, we're already here, you know? And so... Will it stop the tide? It might make some people stop and think. I'm the kind of person who stops and thinks, but not everybody is. A lot of people are like, oh, this is cool new technology. Let's do this. I was interviewed by a person who had a chip in his hand and he says, oh, it's just an RFID. All it does is open my car door and stuff for me. And I says, yeah, well, you know, there's all kinds of authentication information to do that. And when you're using your authentication information to get to your medical records and everything else, just imagine how valuable that's going to be to hackers or 
In this case, I made an evil board of directors behind Globecom. We're like, wow, we have all this power. Let's use it, you know? And that's why the hackers are going after Globecom in the book because they see the abuse of the power. But it's almost already too little too late, even in the book when they start the attack on Globecom. And it takes them 17 years to build up to it because it's not an easy thing to break the internet, you know? Yeah, it's been a long time since someone broke the internet. I think it was... uh... What, 1988? Right. <laughs> when Robert and Morris so, uh, did. But, book number uh, two delves into artificial intelligence, which we hint mm-hmm. at in book one. As you notice, Donsis is being asked to take control of the AI under development as globe is crumbling around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so book number two and book number three are focused more on the AI. I am a happy person by nature. And I would love to see technology used for the greater good. So I'm trying to take book three in that direction. We'll see. I'm on chapter five of book three right now. But things morph. Like in book two, I thought Stasis was going to be a bad guy. He turns out to be a super good guy. Why? Because I removed all motivation for him to be a bad guy. And it'd be nice if we could just kind of reach out and, and do that at high levels. Well, hopefully we get a comeback of Rex because that was one of... A favorite oh, yeah. character, I Rex think, Rex 2.0 shows up in right. book number yeah. two. That's going to be forward to it. Well, hey, any last thoughts that you have as we get ready to wrap up here? Things that you'd like to, to leave our listeners with who are usually in a position of responsibility with regard to security for their enterprises or they're aspiring to a position of responsibility for their enterprises? What would help them do a little bit better job of protecting and defending their organizations over the next couple of years or even in the you know, shorter term future? As we have someone like you who I'll qualify as a visionary, having had so many years in this industry, things that you see that we should be looking for. That's really funny because one of my my CISO friends says that she has to read my book slowly and I and digest the security implications of everything she's reading. So she'll read one section and go, hmm. How does that apply to my job? How does that apply to what's happening today and tomorrow in my world? And I thought that was a pretty interesting comment to get from her. For CISOs, I say this is a hard world that you're in. The reason I'm not doing your job is because I'm pretty sure I can't and because I would think that I would have a heart attack trying to do it. It's very tricky, the rock and the hard place that CISOs are in. And I show some of that in book number one, as you saw. There's even a quote in there saying they're just doing their best, just like anybody else would trying to to bend their networks, you know. And so that stuff is for CISOs, you know, make sure you've got ironclad contracts because things come back to bite you even years after you leave the job. I've seen it. You know what's happening with Joe Sullivan right now. Maybe he didn't make the perfect decision, but he shouldn't be going to jail if the board of Uber thinks, you know, well, you should because you didn't report something to the FTC. Well, that's because his general counsel was demanding he not report it. General counsel is no longer there, so they're throwing him under the bus. So make sure that you've got contracts. Make sure that you've got the ethics in place where if something comes to you like that, you're protected. Either you have to quit your job or whatever you have to do to make sure you're not going to be the one who gets legally entangled with decisions that your larger company is making. Keep on the ball with the good uh, materials and sources of information. Don't believe everything vendors are telling you, which you already already know. Um, And 
do your best. Make sure that you know what all your people are doing in your departments, not just the areas that you feel comfortable. And never be afraid to ask questions and learn from your lower level workers. They always know more than us anyway. They're our experts. That's what they're there for. And elevate the good ones. Wow, there's a lot of wisdom in that to unpack, and I think uh, a wise listener will back up the last 60 to 90 seconds and play it over again and uh, and pay attention to that. Well, anyway, this has been wonderful, Deb, having some time with you on, on the podcast. Deb Radcliffe, she's the author of Breaking Backbones, Information is Power, published by Archway Publishing. It's now available today. You can find it out there. And for everybody out there, thanks again for listening to today's show. And, and if you like what you've heard, Share your episode with other friends on LinkedIn. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcast supports are. We'd love to reach more listeners, and we need your help to do so. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy, and until next time, thanks again for listening, and stay safe.